Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. We caught up with Dan Noon earlier. He's the CEO at G2 Goldfields. Uh, they're hunting for gold down in Guyana. And we talk about their business plan strategy uh, for delivering that project through. They've got 10 years experience working there uh, previously. And we talk about some of the other um, players in the space. So if you want our thoughts and opinions on all of the things that we talked about today with Dan, you can find that at cruxinvestor.com forward slash club, where you can also find detailed uh, analysis. We've got commentary from experts from around the world on a variety of companies and commodities on our weekly shows. Uh, we also do training courses and we've done in, uh, summaries of all the interviews that we've done just to save you some time because we know you are busy people. And why don't you go and also join our thriving community of investors sharing their thoughts and ideas with each other in a nice, friendly and safe environment, free from that judgment, trolling and abuse you may see elsewhere. If that does sound nice to you, join them. Cruxinvestor.com forward slash club. Dan, how are you, sir? Very good. Thank you, Matthew. Oh, fantastic, fantastic. Where in the world are you? I'm in Toronto. Right, right. Still in splendid isolation. Most definitely. <laughs> so, and, so how are things up there? You look like you've got a bit of a town there, so it can't be all bad. Uh, the sun's been out for the last week, so yard work has been the order of the day and getting some vitamin D. It's been good. Good, lads. Okay, well, look. Hey, um, first time we've met, spoken. I haven't heard the story before, so I'm keen to uh, get into it. But before we do, can you give us a one-minute overview, and I'll pick it up from there. Oh, for sure, Matthew. Um, G2 Goldfields, Inc. is listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange. It trades under the symbol GTWO. It also trades on the OTCQX under the symbol GYGF. Uh, we're a gold exploration company. We've made a high-grade discovery down at our OCO project in Guyana, in South America. Uh, the management team is the team that found, uh, took the feasibility, financed and built the Aurora Gold Mine in Guyana, 35 miles to the north of our current discovery at OCO. Uh, insiders own 30% uh, of the stock, have invested $5 million of their own money. Uh, we're currently on hold 73 and drilling continues as we speak. Fantastic. Okay. I was keen to get into this because you you know Guyana quite well. You've you've worked there, you've obviously done business there, and you chose to go back there. Um, what what do you actually set out to do? I'm, I'm intrigued by what you were trying to achieve. So is there is there a business plan? There is, and basically we we enunciated it right at the start. So. We set out, myself and Patrick, it was we want to explore for large, high-grade deposits, tier one assets, and so we need to put ourselves in a place where you can find these. And so, obviously, Guyana, we knew well. It's the western half of the um, Leo Man Shield in northwest Africa, which has 300 million ounces delineated. The Guyana Shield had 100 million, 60 million in Venezuela from the 1990s. So there's a lot of potential between Guyana to northern um, Brazil for high-grade, world-class discoveries. We knew Guyana well, let's go to Guyana. That's A. Second was to acquire district-scale properties. So we don't want a postage stamp. We want to own districts where we can put together a series of deposits because these orogenic gold deposits tend to be a string of pearls as opposed to porphyry deposits, which tend to be large, you know, 10 million ounce in one body together as opposed to let's say a Boisi, which is over eight kilometres and 70 million ounces, but basically a series of deposits, you know, it's a Chirano, um, 
uh, 17 kilometres long and seven different deposits for four and a half million ounces, that sort of thing. So we wanted the districts. So we did that. We went and found the uh, Aramuoko district, put that together, and we also have the Peruni district with the old Peters mine there. So that was step two. Step three, Patrick's always about exploring in the shadow of the headphones. And so on these claims, we also have the Peters mine in Peruni and the Aramu mine in the Aramuoko district, which were uh, modern-day mines at the, in the first decade of the 20th century. So they were there. They've had mid-scale mines since that, operating when we when we came in at Oco um, and also at Jubilee in the Peruni district. So we're in a mining district. Also, we want to explore in a mining-friendly jurisdiction, and we know Guyana. We built a mine there. For us, that wasn't hard. And we think once you have those four things, you'll attract the majors. And that's why you see Barrick and Newmont active in the Guianas, and particularly uh, Barrick in Guyana itself. Uh, Zijin acquired Aurora Gold Mines. They're China's biggest gold mining company. So once you have that and then you start to get M&A from the mid-tiers, Grand Columbia acquired Goldex, you know when you find something you can sell. So that was the first four things we had to put in place and then we just had to make a discovery. <laughs> so, And that's what we did at OCO. So it was right off the bat. It, it happened quicker than you'd think it would. And so that's where we're at. We're at the discovery phase and now we move on. And the phase here is to build out... Um, the resource of Oco, and then, but at the same time, explore a long trend of 17 kilometres between Aramu to Oco we control, and also get into Peruni. But the main focus at the moment after discovery is the Oco main zone. So you really, okay, so I, I get the jurisdiction and all the things that you just mentioned that come, come along with that, um, but you you put a lot of money in this. You put five million bucks in it. So you've got to have, a, you clearly have a high degree of confidence in what you've picked up. So can you just talk about what it was that you bought? What did it cost? How did you pay for it? How did you structure that? Okay, so basically uh, G2 Goldfields used to be Sandy Lake Gold and it had a um, uh, claims in Northwestern Ontario. Um, and that was going fairly well. We just spun that, that those uh, assets out again. But basically when we left Guyana Goldfields, we said, well, we want to do this Guyana um, proposition. Uh, there was a company called Bardicum Investments, which was um, attempting to mid-scale mine both these areas, um, at the sort of Aramu and uh, the Peters mine. And so we acquired that asset for, um, it was about 50 million shares. It was about 35% of the company. And that's when we took it on and we put the money in and financed it. Now, the reason we like this area is uh, geologically, it's in the same basin as, as Aurora. Uh, so we knew the geology very well. Also, from the work we've been doing at Aurora, we started to understand where we need to be in these basins, which is in the margins and the corners. So we had a triple point junction down here at the south. Uh, you had a historically very high grade mineralisation at the Aramu and Peters. The Oco we picked up as an option from the Vieira family in Guyana after the initial acquisition because they had some uh, uh, subcontracting Brazilian underground miners there who were pulling out spectacular amounts of gold. So Michael had called up Patrick and said, come and have a look at this. This is fantastic. So I suppose that's serendipitous that you're down there and, you know, these people. And so we put that together and we said, well, this is as good a shot as any because if you want to find a world-class deposit and, you know, you're looking for your model, and the model is a Boise. I mean, you, one model is something smaller. <laughs> and you, you say, let's look at the same geology, and it is the same geology. And so... Let's go and explore for that. So you've got your carbonaceous shales, uh, you've got your on the contact of 
bath list, so you've got these base and margin structures, you've got everything you could possibly wish as a geologist to see to go and find one of these things. And so, you know, you're not getting any younger, right? You may as well put your money where your mouth is and go and explore. And, you know, that's what we've done. And so what's the model there? From Aurora, obviously, you've learned a lot in terms of how you should approach the, the assets that you've got now. So that's all good news. But just remind me there, because I'm trying to understand where you, whether you're going to apply some sort of cookie-cutter approach or having seen what, how Aurora's uh, developed, whether you're going to take it further up the curve. Uh, yeah, Aurora was a quite, a, to a degree, an accidental build because the financial crisis came in the middle of the whole feasibility phase. Um, everything went crazy, but we kept working. So, and we drove it through to feasibility uh, Guiana at that time also really didn't have many majors exploring there back in the uh, 2000s. So every potential acquirer you brought down, we had to enter the country for the first time. Also, the IFC was a, a major shareholder and they were driving hard to get it built. So they wanted to finance it. They wanted us to build it. Um, so we built a team around that and did that. Uh, it's, it's not the uh, goal Certainly this time, I mean, I'm a geologist and Patrick's an explorer. We'd prefer to find it and be taken out. And then that really is, is the uh, model which we're working on here. So by, by that, find it means what, don't, don't do any studies on it? Uh, look, seriously, you, you, we would take it to a pre-feasibility stage, I think. I mean, you always have to keep marching it forward until someone comes along and says, hey, I want to buy you. But you have to be looking for that opportunity as well. I think in Guyana this time, uh, with the activity down there amongst the majors, and now we see mid-tiers, uh, that opportunity will come a lot easier and earlier uh, than it came at Aurora. So you're saying because the majors are in there, that they, they understand the jurisdiction and the, and the mining code and the law, et cetera, so therefore that doesn't put them um, off. It's, it's, it's not so well-known amongst sort of junior investors, though, is it? I mean, are there any sort of smaller players in there, any success stories that people can look to? Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's probably, we look at probably... Um, four other companies down there in the junior sector who are doing things where they have picked up old artisanal mining areas and have the potential, uh, like us, to make a discovery. Um, there's obviously other companies, but there's four probably who are really having a crack at it. Um, so it's not heavily uh, explored by uh, Canadian juniors. And there is a barrier to entry there that is already a mining country and there's a lot of mid-scale miners. So a lot of the land is already tied up by local miners who are mining and making money. So you sort of have to cut a deal to get in there. It's not just go stake on the computer and, and away you go. So that is a bit of a barrier to Canadian juniors. Uh, certainly not a barrier to major mining companies. And it's not a barrier to us because of our um, experience down there. Well, tell us a little bit about the country because we're seeing this sort of whole narrative around uh, South America being uh, not such a good place for um Retail investors put their money because every time there's an election, there seems to be some sort of narrative around, oh, it's a socialist country. They're going to tax this thing. They're anti-mining. Um, it, it'll, it'll never work, right? We've seen it in Ecuador, Peru, Mexico. We're seeing it in Chile now. It, 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 every single time. How does that affect the way that you talk to the markets? Because does Guiana suffer a little bit from that? I think Guiana, as we're saying in Brazil, that the Guianas stand with their back to South America and they're part of CARICOM and part of the Caribbean they're not really considered to be Latin America. Um, also, they also they sort of had their socialist uh, crack at it back in the 60s and it didn't work out so well. So with that, they're very much um, a, uh, a British law, but also the new oil discovery down there uh, will now take Guyana into the top four growth country, countries in the world and be the richest 
uh, country per capita in South America in 10 years, I think. So, and it's also a highly educated country. The British did very well there. They got 95% literacy. Um, yeah, so it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a sort of a Western-style country anyway that just didn't have much money historically. Right, okay. So how much money have you raised in total? Uh, we've raised in the last uh, two years about $10.5 million. Right. Is, is that when you're starting from? Yeah, well, I mean, if you talk historically back at, at the Sandy Lake uh, days, originally this company was in Brazil. It's called Lago Dorado. But um, so this is the third iteration of it. Um, so s- since we did the a- a- acquisition of Bartica Investments into Guyana, we've raised about $10.5 million. And, in, and I suppose another, um, that's about 10.5, including once. Yeah. Right. How, how do you think you're doing? Because I, like, I think you kind of shot out of the gate. People got really excited. You're up at dollar twenty. So it's come back down, settled down for about the last year. I mean, say sideways, right? But the results have been quite good. There's a lot of, I've looked at the halts, right? There's some really nice high-grade veining going on in there, and it's an orogenic, so presumably you know a little bit more about, you know, the, that meeting expectation. I mean, what, what's the sort of average grade you're seeing outside of these high-grade veins, for instance? In, in, the, in the shears, which are generally anywhere between three to five, and we have six parallel shears, when we're getting assays commonly above 10 grams, we, we, you know, on the back of the envelope, we always drop it down to eight, but uh, it commonly above uh, 10 grams over, you know, three to five metres per shear zone. So it's, it's, it is a high-grade deposit. I mean, when you end up modelling these things, like in northern Ontario, it always comes down to eight grams because eight grams is a good mine. So you include enough material to make it eight grams. I mean, at the end of the day, it's a high-grade vein system and it, it Basically, it will be what you want to make it at the end of the day. I mean, certainly the core of these things, some of the assays is commonly half an ounce. But um, I think, you know, if you, we, we'd be comfortable talking about eight grams because we know that works. Right. And, and, and so, therefore, you've got an expectation because of what you know about the country that that's the way this would be mined too. Because when we talk about orogenic, there's typically a sort of lower grade, more homogenous spread uh, as, as well to, with high grade, uh, high grade veining through it. Yeah, I suppose. I mean, we like the high grade. There is you can include the uh, lower grade halos, and I suppose if you look at an open pit, you will do that, and you'll drop the grade down. Um, we're focusing on the high grade because at the end of the day, most of your answers end up there anyway. And also in these orogenic systems, they tend to be deep. I mean, our starter surface, as ours does, but they will go deep. So at the end of the day, you're going to have to have a high grade uh, mine somewhere. You may as well model it that way. Um, if the engineers come later and say, hey, we're going to take it all this low-grade stuff, well, good on them, fine. But geologically, we need to model what is there in the high-grade and then we can decide later how you're going to mine. Right. So, so if you're only going to take it through to the PEA stage, so how much more money do you need? Because you're on hole 73. The, the, hole the, 73. Yeah. Great. It's been good. You're hitting, hitting mineralisation a lot of the time. So it's, it's, it's all good. But how much more money, how much more drilling needs to happen? What do you need before you actually push the button on um, commissioning the PEA? Yeah, that's a good question because it's like how long is a piece of string? Hopefully, if it's really big, it takes longer and lots of money. <laughs> but when you step off it and you get to the end of it and go, that's it, well, then that's when you start to say, okay, now let's infill drill and get a resource and whatever else. So that's a very hard question, Matthew. Um, I would like to think that it's going to be, you know, at least uh, 10 to 20 could be $30 million if we, if we keep building it out. I mean, in the Oco main zone, we have it over about 900 metres now where we keep consistently hitting uh, 
all the sheaves, they're behaving themselves, they're good grade. And then we come to the south where it turns slightly and runs for another 1.5 kilometres and we still hit mineralisation, but we haven't hit the uh, consistent high grades. That is still a riddle to figure out, but that is contiguous with what we've been drilling today. So uh, we're working hard to understand that if that comes together, then you've got another 1.5 kilometres on the 850, 900 metres we already have. And then you also, so, and when, when do you say you're going to approve a PEA, I suppose, it's when you drill enough to say, really, we need to do it here now. We, we, we're not finding anything else around this deposit. And I don't think we're anywhere near there yet. Okay, but see, this this is where it gets interesting for me is, is the way that the company goes about if you were saying, right, I'm gonna get this thing into production, you're gonna you're gonna the order of play is different, right? You you make a bunch of different decisions. But given that you know your your hard stop date is uh, production of this PEA, how do you go about allocating capital? how do you approach drilling? Because you're presenting a different set of information for someone else to kind of pick up and you've got to leave a little bit on the table for them as, uh, as well. So what are the, what are the decisions that are? That... So our goal, I mean, let's say this last five million, when we raised that, okay, what are we going to do from this discovery where we have about 40 holes already and not quite understanding exactly what's going on, where do we want to take it with this money to increase that value? So we said, okay, we need to basically uh, keep stepping down and out to keep making it bigger and show investors that it's getting bigger. We also needed to drill back in some of the holes and some of the misses and saying, what's the controls? You know, we're, we're not quite understanding that. So we need to drill the mineralisation to see in detail what the controls are. But in general, we like to keep stepping out. So this time we're stepping out to the west because we thought there was more shear zones. We sort of hit things which look like it. So now we've increased, we've got six shear zones, not three. Um, we also now know that there is a uh, control which is plunging to the north, so we're going to drill down to the north but beneath the surface and so to extend it, and then we'll keep doing that. So that's what we, we're trying to find where the boundaries of this are. And so, but sometimes you still need to drill within, you know, like just little step outs to show that your theories work, but you have to consistently come up with a model, test it, a model, test it, so you have to keep drilling new, which leads to misses. <laughs> which the market sometimes punishes you for. But basically, if we're going to make this thing big as possible, as quickly as possible to attract a takeout from a major, that's the things that we have to do. We have to keep stepping out, keep challenging ourselves to uh, keep moving the model forward and testing it. And so that's how we plan our drilling. So we're not planning to infill. Once we know that shear's in, it's over there, and we're comfortable geologically, um, we'll, we'll keep moving out. I mean, statistically, they may make you come back and fill in later, but that's something for a second, for another phase when you're trying to uh, calculate a, a resource which you want to put a mine around. It's quite that's quite a topical conversation at the moment because we, we, we've seen companies hit high grade veins and they step out ten meters. That doesn't tell you too much. Well, it's not very not not a lot of new data there. But so when you say you're doing these step outs, you're trying to work out the the, the extent and the limits of, of, of these shares. So. How do you plan it? Because if you're if you're if you're going to hand this data over to someone looking at the PEA, they're going to want to know that you are trying to understand the district better. So, how, because, do you know what I mean? Because there's, there's there's there are companies that perhaps do these smaller step outs because they're looking for a headline, trying to bump the price up because they want to raise money with you know cheap more cheaply, and and that's fine. That's that's part of the game. Um, but you've you've got a different set of drivers. So how, how do you approach it? I think if you drive it um, 
by geology because the geology here is is it's not crazy i mean it's it's, it's rather simple geology i mean it's been deformed you know multiple times but the geology you can log it you can orient a course so that you know structurally what's going on and basically you can we can really say that shear is that shear 50 meters away i've more log it's on the contact of this andesite and that carbonaceous shale and on the other side of the carbonaceous shale is another shear and that joins up with that intersect over there so geologically it works. I mean, statistically, they may say those holes are too far apart. You're going to have to put holes in between. But I know geologically, and if you walk down there with the chief geologist from a major company and you walk through the core and you walk over the ground, they'll see it as well. So, I mean, it's the sales point here at the end of the day is we want a major to come in and say, yeah, we want to buy that. Um, you know, how do we sell that to institutional investors? We have to be a little more um, less detailed in the geology, just talk generically. And I suppose for our retail investors, we need to say, look, we're drilling a high-grade deposit. We're going to keep it in high-grade minimisation. But I mean, but it's got to be driven by that end goal, which is we want a uh, to find as big a deposit as possible as quickly as possible, with suspending as little as much money as possible. And so that, that's the driver of how we go about exploring. Okay. And what's the difference? So I'm going to labour this point because a lot of new people and generalists coming into this space perhaps aren't too technical. Right. We do try, we put out reports about you know how, how you interpret drill holes. So I want to spend a bit of time with, with someone who does it as you know geologist and, and, and knows a bit more to you than just geologists. But so what's the difference between doing these um, 10, 20 meter step outs and going out 400 meters and then coming in and doing infill? What, 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 why, the, why are those two approaches different? Sometimes uh, when, when, you're, when you're drilling and you don't really understand the geology, but you've got a good hit, it's like, I don't know where to go. I'm just going to step out. 15 metres and see, then I've got two at least two points or two points of reference and I can start to build a model around this. But once you've got a robust, enough data in that area and a robust model, then you start to say, it's going over there, I'm going to step out 100 yards and hit it. And if you hit it, great, keep going. If you miss it, then you have to come back and say, what assumptions did I make to take me out there, which was wrong? And sometimes you have to come back and drill again. And um, so... That's basically the scientific method, really. I mean, you're basically building a model, you're testing it. If it doesn't work out, you have to come back and collect more data from the known area to give you that information. Okay, so it's confidence. It is good. That's a, that's a good answer. <laughs> right. Okay, good. Um, okay, so let's let's talk about the team, the rest of the team. You, you mentioned, obviously, you well, actually give us, your back, you give us a bit of your background. What about the rest of the team? Okay, so the rest of the team uh, is uh, Patrick Sheridan is the executive chairman. He was the founder of Guiana Goldfields. Um Back in 1994, uh, he comes from a, a long history of mining families. He's a Masters of Economics, London School of Economics. Uh, so that's his background. He's been very successful in the junior mining sector. He was uh, one of the founders of gold. What became Gold Eagle was taken out by Gold Corp for a billion dollars. So he's very, uh, very knowledgeable on the street. Um, then in country, we had Violet Smith, who was the country manager for Guiana Goldfields, who went down with Patrick in 1994 and uh, started the company. She's a Guyanese national as well as Canadian. Um, our VP of Exploration is Boaz Wade. He's a Guyanese national who was with Troy Resources. And then we got him across to Guyana Goldfields. He was headed up around mine exploration and that remodeling of the whole geology there. And then he came across to us uh, last year and was here for the discovery. So he's an he's a excellent geologist very good structural geologist right okay um so he i mean obviously you you've talked about aurora and so forth is that is that the the one standout success is that what we should look to in terms of what you you're capable of or is there more to you 
there's more to that. I mean, basically, I started with um, uh, Rio Tinto. I was Kennecott, taken out by Rio Tinto in Papua New Guinea for four years. And that's where, you know, that was the Leahy discovery. I wasn't on that. I was when worked on it a bit. But basically, I saw what a big deposit was, right? And I was like, wow, that's what we look for. And then I went and worked for Newcrest in Indonesia. There was the Gossawong discovery there while I was there, um, which it turned out to be five million hours. That was a great deposit. That was another good discovery experience. Uh, then I worked for Homestake in uh, Peru. And that was generally looking for another high sulfidation system they could buy, which ended up being Baladero in um, Argentina. So that was all came out of the back end of that four-year program. So then um, yeah, I went to an MBA, came back, and decided to do it myself. And then we, uh, a private company, Kalapui, um, picked up a high sulfidation system in Peru. We made a discovery, ended up being about 600,000 ounces. We were taken out by Aqualine Resources. So I stayed on with them. Uh, we were taken out again by Pan American Silver for Navidad for 600 million. So then I, that's when I rolled onto Guiana Goldfields with Patrick. So um, that's my history. So I've been around uh, discoveries, which I haven't necessarily been involved in the discovery of, but certainly seen them unfold and, um, and discoveries myself. So, yeah, it's quite addictive uh, pastime. It, it is. So I just want to say, I know I asked you like the timing and so forth and how much more spend. So, uh, but what I, I don't think we discussed really was what's your expect, expectation? Because you have to bring out a maiden resource before the PEA. You, you must have a number in your mind as what that needs to look like. You're talking the language of, you know, big, big companies there, big discoveries, you know, um, a lot of big resources. So do you feel that you need to come to the table with a big number in terms of the resource before you can do a PEA? Or is there a smaller number in mind? No, I, I think definitely a big number. I think where we're at at the moment, we can uh, you know, we're talking multiples in, in the millions of ounces early on here, I think, just uh, at, at OCO is, is the target. Uh, like I say, these things tend to be a string of pearls anyway, and that's why we want the district. So if OCO ends up being a couple, uh, then fine, and we'll, and we'll put a number around that whilst we explore the rest of the district. But when we finish at the main OCO zone, that's when we'll put a number on the PA. I mean, there's always this funny thing about resources. Once you put a number there, people hold it up and say, that's how big it is. And when you're upgrading that, <laughs> it's like, well, we're still exploring the rest of the trend. So there is that. But I think it does need a number under uh, the company. I mean, we only have a market cap of around $50 million now. So I think putting a, a resource number out there, hopefully before the end of the year, would be a goal. And to just put a line under the value of the, of the asset. Well, and then with the, with the knowledge that we're still expanding that, but also expanding the whole district. And so, and like I said, to attract the majors into the day, you have to keep start putting these thing, numbers on them, but you also have to have the district. They don't want to buy a deposit. They want to buy a district. So, and we have to keep exploring the district. Okay. I, and we have to reduce our cost of capital, which by putting out a resource, we think would. Yeah, and we've seen, we've seen a few business models out there, the, the, the way that companies um, approach these things. Getting a stake in the sand, getting a re-rate, it, it's great. It makes uh, yeah. you know, raising money a little bit cheaper as well. It also helps people understand what the potential is. But as you say, a small number, a couple of million, probably not that interesting unless you go and do further work. So it's, it's, it's merely a stake in the sand. And if you put out a PA, that doesn't necessarily mean come and get us. That's just pay attention. I'm trying to, I'm yeah, trying to work out when investors... I don't think you'd do a PA on the back of a couple of million. I think you'd, you'd basically, if you're going to put a resource out, you'd, you'd put it out and put it... Look, in this little block here, that's what we've got. You know, just to show that you've genuinely got a third-party validated 
uh, resource, which you look at and go, oh, that'll be a mine, right? It mightn't be a major company mine, but it'll be a mine. It puts a, a line under your value of the stock. But, I mean, then you want to clearly talk to the fact that this thing is going to get a lot bigger through via exploration, right? And But, I mean, like I say, there is a tricky balance there because you, you need to attract uh, shareholders who want to buy in for the exploration upside and and pay a better price for it. So, I mean, if we had, if I was in a major company and you had endless money, it cost nothing, well, we, well, we'd, we'd wait till you drilled the whole thing off, right? Exactly. I'm just I'm trying to work out how you judge that careful balance because as shareholders um, looking in, you're going, well, what are they up to? What was the timing here? People, people like to throw you know some curve stats out of at you, or they're trying to work out when where they should ride this through to. You know, do you know what I mean? So it just it just helps understanding what's going on in your head. I'm looking. That's, that's a debate we have uh, commonly in the company because we we understand, you know. That's problematic. I mean, Gold Eagle, they sold for a billion dollars to uh, Gold Corp and never had a resource. It was at Red Lake. It was next to the mine. You know, every buyer up there understood what was there and that, you know, you're not going to drill off a resource up there, right? So basically, in that situation, why would you bother? You know, and so, you know, when we would prefer to err on the side of caution of not putting one out, but eventually we will have to. Basically, and without having drilled the whole district out, if you know what I mean, or, or drill out five million ounces so that Newmont or Barrack or Zijing goes, yeah, we're coming in over the top. So, you know, if but then again, if we get lucky and we just keep building out the Oco main zone and it all appears there, well, then maybe we will. You know what I mean? But if, once I think once Oco stops, once we get to the point where we're just drilling holes around Oco and can't find any more extensions, I think we have to put a number around that. Yeah, I agree. I, I just thought it was a fascinating conversation because, you know, we, we've spoken to companies who are 800 million, billion, 1.3 billion, no resource. Mm-hmm. You, you probably know who I'm talking about. And that's fine. They keep drilling. And, and, and it gets to a point where the market gets bored of these high grade results and they want a little bit more conventional certainty around, you know, what it is that, that that's there, or at least some clarity over what the management plan for an exit is, because at those sorts of that sort of scale, that sort of market cap, it's um it's it's hard to see where the growth story comes from. Completely. And, and I suppose that, that probably brings another point to the discussion we have. It's like how 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 small, how what size does a mid-tier company need to turn this into a mine? Because if that's your your your, your your Batman, your, your second best option. Well, then, what is that number? Because because that also will put a, a value on 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 the stock here, right? So you wouldn't put out. I mean, go and put out a half million out for resource. Well, no one's going to buy it. No one's going to build it. So why would you bother? <laughs> so you have to get something that's buildable by a credible company and it's going to make a certain amount of money, right? So I mean, you, you wouldn't bother putting a resource out before that. But also, I think you need to have stepped out and defined this is how big this deposit within the. Uh, within the trend is so yeah but it, it is it is certainly something which people ask you about some people and lots of different opinions on it as well from different investors so well yeah because if yeah, i look if i look a at a, a rocks gold or a sarabi gold they've got their high grade mineralization um, and they have gone on half a million 
ads resource because that's the model to get cash flowing. So there's lots of ways to come at it. I'm not, you know, they're all good. Well, as long as they work and it's economic, it's good. But uh, again, it just comes back to just really trying to get clarity from you as the way you were thinking about the best way to approach mining in Guyana. That, that would, we, we're not intending to build a small mine. <laughs> so basically, if we built one mine in Guyana and it was, and it was, like I say, it was sort of like, there was a number of circumstances that keep drive, kept driving, driving us forward in that situation. Uh, we'd like to think this time that we have an exit strategy well before that. And um, so, you know, and building a small mine isn't one of them. Right, <laughs> so okay. It'll be some, somebody else will build this mine. There's no doubt about that, you know, I, whatever it is. Fantastic. So I don't get to labour the point. I just, I, first time I've spoken, I'm, I'm really trying to dig, dig, dig into the mentality here. Um, can you talk about the spin out at Sandy Lake? So obviously that, that was an obvious thing to do, but um, you've done it, it looks like. Yeah, we have, and we and it closed the other day. Uh, that was um, because when we had Sandy Lake, I mean, one thing about Northern Canada is seasonal. Um, so, you know, it comes and goes. We drilled some good holes up there. We were probably at the stage where it was like um, after the first 10 holes at Oco, except that, I mean, Sandy is uh, more like a red lake model where it really is spectacular. It grows like you know, eight metres and 30 grams and then 10 metres of where'd it go. So it's one of those, it's a difficult uh, geological model. Uh, it will need a lot more work. You also have the banded iron formations up there, which we drew, we had 50 metres at 0.5, which was interesting, right? A big uh, disseminated system. But then we came into COVID. Um, we had the success at OCO and you start here looking and saying, well, where's we do budgets? Where are we going to spend the money next year? Sandy Lake doesn't come anywhere near what we're doing down in Guyana, so that's certainly not going to get the money that we raise. Uh, so for Sandy Lake to uh, start to release value, it needs to be a standalone uh, company again. Um, we own the 60 kilometres. We own the whole Greenstone Belt up there. That was like a serendipitous situation where the First Nations hadn't wanted exploration forever. Then they allowed it, and then as the government was going from physical staking to map staking, they asked us to stake the whole area. Uh, because they didn't want strangers coming in. So it was a very serendipitous situation. Uh, we haven't got necessarily got agreements to explore that whole area, but basically in, on the west end we have. So anyway, but that is going to be a separate company now and run off on its own and be Canadian-focused. A lot of um, uh, Canadian investors like uh, Northern Ontario gold exploration stories. So I think it's a different value uh, set and it's an earlier stage in the exploration cycle than what we are at Guyana. For sure, and and so and G two shareholders benefited how? Yeah, we dividended that out. Uh, so we, it was one share for every ten, and we gave a right to buy another share for ten cents to go with that share that was issued. You know, normally when a lot of times when these spinouts happen, it's like they spin it out, gives give you a bit of a share, then they finance it themselves, the insiders, and take all the shares. So we were like, uh, we wanted to do it fair. We like the English rights issue system. Uh, the exchange here was a bit. We had to walk them through the concept of a share issue here, but it, it worked. Um, the You could oversubscribe for the people who didn't take up the um, the the rights, and that was oversubscribed by 11 million. So people saw value there. It's come out, we'll have 25 million uh, shares and uh, $1.25 million in the bank to get on with it. So that was, uh, I think, a positive uh, value creation for the shareholders and allows that company to focus on, uh, on the Canadian assets okay, so and raise money for that exploration. Well, there you go. That's to, to, to the point. So I think the structure looks good. Um, cash position, not so much. But um, so how, how do they move forward? I'm only asking because I need to understand what, for GT shareholders, why it made, it made sense for them 
Yeah, well, there was certainly no value, I think, within the uh, G2 um, company in the Sandy Lake assets. It wasn't a focus and we weren't, like I said, we sit down at budgets and gave our allocation of funds, Sandy Lake was well behind Guyana. So, I mean, now they get a share in a company and a right, which most took down to, which it does need agreements uh, extended at the east and west end of the lake. Uh, so it's a winter drilling program. The earliest we could be up there would be next winter to get a rig up there to drill on a barge in the summer. So it's, it's got a long lead time on the uh, A&E drill news. So the money that is in, in there now will take us all the way to the point where we say we're going to be drilling in like a month or two months because you don't want to raise money on, oh, we've got 18 months' time, we're going to get some news. And so basically the money that's there now will take us all the way to the drilling uh, program, which will then be money will be raised for that. Right, so there's a it's kind of holding pattern. You, you've done the structuring, done the spinner. It's it, it doesn't need any further input until the point when you get closer to drilling. Which point? So, are you guys going to? I assume. So, how, how much of that company do you guys hold? The management team of GT. Uh, same ratio. So basically, right. um, Patrick's at twenty seven. I'm at five, and Stephen Stowe's at about four. So we underwrote the uh, issue, but none of it came to us in the end. Okay, <laughs> so okay. Like, understood. So which, is, which is good for the shells. Okay, so that's good. So, and, and in terms of the operational side of things, is it same again? Same same people? Yeah. So basically, it's, it's, it's going to be basically we're in the same office. So it's like a sub. I mean, at the end of the day, the management it could have stayed within G two Goldfields, and we could have managed it. But for the purposes of raising money and spending it, we wanted two separate companies. So, but functionally, it'll be like you know we're we're running. Another, another project up in northern Canada with the same management team. It's, it's a bizarre concept, isn't it? But that's the way it needs to be done in Canada. To a degree. I mean, eventually, if, if, if Sandy Lake really gets the discovery and gets going, it would need to you know, branch out on its own as it gets bigger, right? But at the moment, you're really just running exploration programs. Well, first of all, you're really dealing with the uh, First Nation um, agreements and then logistics to start a, a drill program. It's not a, a, a time-consuming uh, operation at the moment. It just needs to be guided through that process over the next 18 months. Okay, so big shareholders. Can I just, again, I'm I mean, intrigued with the way that things, things are done. So Spinner, two companies, same uh, management team, same sort of shareholding structure, which is great. What do you do? Split your time and salary between the two or does the new co pay you more money for managing? How does it work? Well, we haven't uh, basically talked about payment out of our S2 yet. I mean, like at G2 when we started at uh, Management didn't take wages for two years. You know, so basically we were, we were putting money in ourselves. We didn't see uh, the work that was needed to be done. We didn't need to pay ourselves, right? So S2 will have that conversation. It won't, if it's anything, it'll be nominal, I think. Um, and and because really there's not a lot of time. If we decide that, if the boards decide that there has to be a split, yeah, I'd say 95% would be G2 and 5% would be S2 over the next 18 months. It's not a... Like I say, it's not a huge drain on, on uh, management time, but uh, it, it needs to be guided through to the point where we can drill up there. And then the decisions might be made then about staffing that and uh, pushing it further away from G2. But at the moment, it's pretty much being incubated under the wing of G2 as far as um, Got it. Uh, management time and skill sets. Understood. Okay, fantastic. Well, look, um, great first conversation. I think I think I understand what you're trying to do, which is which is always a, always a bonus. Um, I, I you've got a few things. Obviously, you've got to get through this year. So, what can we expect to see from you um, on G two for the rest of this year? Okay, so G two, we're, we're continuing drilling at um, 
okay, like I say, expanding it out. We had plans to uh, drill at um, the Peters and Jubilee uh, projects. It, we said second quarter, which is uh, you know, next month. That's being pushed back because of the what we're seeing at um, OCA where the model worked. So we, we built a model, we're testing it, and now we're drilling more holes. So that timescale is pushed back. We'd like to possibly see a second rig if we can logistically and manpower uh, work that either at OCA or go across and, and test the uh, Peters and, and Jubilee projects. There's also the Aramie project in the northwest. Uh, 17 kilometres from Oco, which we stuck some holes in last year. And we had one hole that was 3.7 metres, 10.5 grams under the old Oco mine. And we hit a bunch of shafts too. People didn't like first release, I didn't understand it. <laughs> um, uh, that is something we've been mapping with our guys and we will want to get back there uh, sometime this year as well. That was really the jewel in the crown when we first came here. Oco sort of has overtaken it. So there, there are those secondary... Uh, that, other assets which aren't as advanced as OCO, which we want to drill as well. Uh, but basically we'll keep drilling OCO and possibly get a second rig there if we can get our model far enough ahead of ourselves uh, that we can justify it. So okay, long-winded answer. Sorry about that. No, it's perfect. All, it's all good. Um, so some, something to look forward to. Well, look, Dan, appreciate your time today. Um, nice story. Uh, like what you're doing there. Um, stay in touch let us know how you get on I'd be definitely very pleased to take that phone call thank you very much Matthew I'm sure uh, we'll try and get back next quarter as well thank you for listening if you've enjoyed the interview why not subscribe to Cruxcast or our website cruxinvestor.com and of course our YouTube channel Crux Investor plus you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn we really love getting your feedback so please keep it coming and we'll speak to you again soon